Well, good morning, everybody. I was in the back observing you as you were singing, and you look relatively perky this morning, so that's a good thing. I'm glad. May I say something? This is post-worship and pre-sermon. <laughs> I love Heartland. I absolutely love Heartland. And if God somehow appeared before me and said, you can speak anywhere in the world you want this morning, where would you like to be, I would say, Heartland. And I mean that from my lips to God's ears, as my Jewish friends like to say. You are sitting on holy ground. You are sitting in a place where God has sovereignly chosen to touch the earth. And I hope you feel that. All right, we have a lot to talk about. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 16, I would appreciate it. Matthew chapter 16. I want to read to you verse 13 from one of the Bibles to which Bob alluded a moment ago. It happens to be a, an NIV. I call it the not-so-new international version, the NIV. And I want to read to you just the first part of verse 13. So if you're taking notes, Matthew 16, colon, verse 13, call it 13a if you'd like. And I'm only going to read the first part because I have no doubt that when Matthew's original readers read this 13th verse, they stopped where I am going to stop. All right? In honor of God's word, if you would stand with me, please. And this is what we read. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, that gasp you just heard were the original readers inhaling upon reading that in shock and horror at the thought. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, that thud you heard was the scroll of the glorious gospel of Matthew being dropped on the table as they couldn't believe what they had just read when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Why? Because none of our Jewish friends would ever go there and no rabbi in the world would even think of taking his disciples there. But Jesus did. Why? Let's pray together, and I'll tell you why. Thank you, Father, for bringing us together this morning. We ask your richest blessing upon our next few moments together. Thank you for the worship we've already enjoyed. And for those who led us in that, we ask your blessing now upon my feeble attempt to explain what was taking place in Matthew chapter 16. And so we commit this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. I have a confession to make, if I may, and that is this. I awoke this morning to the realization that my brain, the synapses of my mind, are firing on overdrive. I am ADD, normally, but this morning it is off the chart ADD, all right? So much so, if I seem distracted, that's the reason so much so that I, I came up with three introductions to this message. 
three. Most people will give you a three-point outline, properly alliterated. I don't have three-point outlines, but I do have three introductions, and I couldn't decide which one I like the best. So I'm going to yield to my ADD and give you all three. Can I do that? So I'm going to introduce this passage in three different ways. All right, introduction number one. I come before you this morning brimming with optimism. I am the bright beacon of hope in your life this morning. I hope you are feeling hopeful, but I'm realistic enough to realize that there are perhaps scattered in amongst the paying customers this morning, some of you who either now or in the past or perhaps in the future would be prone to feeling defeated, discouraged, maybe overwhelmed a bit, looking around and wondering, is there any hope? We are living in the midst of a culture that is disintegrating. Both outside, I'm sorry to say, and inside many of our churches. A culture that is in the process of disintegrating. And there is much that is disheartening about that. And there may be times when I know in your mind, I know up here, you know, that when all is said and done, Jesus wins, and when he wins, we win. But in your heart, you may not always feel that. And in light of the tidal wave of compromise and corruption that is flooding our culture, you may look around at a place like Heartland and wonder, does it make any difference at all? What is this? wonderful as it is compared to all of that. That's introduction number one. Introduc introduction number two. Today is the 25th of August, which is notable for a couple of reasons. The 25th of August, that means that exactly four months from today, Christmas. But beyond that, one month ago today exactly was Thursday night when I said goodbye to a high school camp in this very outdoor chapel. And on that night, as I said most every time that I had the privilege of speaking to those precious students, I made this point, something I would like you to hear and never forget. And that is this, the Bible, the Bible is God's written record, the Bible God's written record of, listen, real people who lived in real places, who had real experiences, all of which point to a real God. The Bible is God's written record of real people who lived in real places, I can take you there, who had real experiences, all of which point to a real God. This morning, I want to introduce you to some of those real people, and I want to take you to a real place, all right? That's introduction number two. Introduction <laughs> number three. The disciples were having a really bad day. Truth be told, they were in the midst of a season of multiple bad days. 
have a bad day. They were mentally and emotionally and spiritually at this point in the story exhausted. When they signed on to follow Jesus, everything, everything was glorious. The crowds were swelling. When Jesus stopped to teach, there were times when he faced crowds of thousands, literally thousands. You remember the feeding of the 5,000? That was just the men, plus women, plus children, multiple thousands. There were so many people who came to hear him speak that the gospel writers in our translations use the word in the plural multitudes. I would prefer to translate the word crowds. We can relate to that word, I think, a little more readily. When Jesus stopped to teach, it wasn't just a crowd, multiple, plural, crowds of people came to hear him. The miracles were dazzling, brilliant in their glory. It was jaw-dropping for the disciples to be on hand to watch every miracle that Jesus did, let alone hearing the syllable of every word that Jesus taught. He was riding the wave of popularity. He was the head of, if I can use a crass term, I don't know a better term to use, the Jesus movement was alive and well and flourishing. And the disciples were on the leading edge of that. All of a sudden, and I mean in the blink of an eye, if you tracked, if you graphed the, the trajectory of Jesus' ministry, it started out down here, it shot up here, and then off the table, it just dropped. The crowds no longer came. The people no longer heralded him as a hero. They were no longer clamoring to hear him teach. The religious leaders had done a masterful job, a PR campaign, second to none, in which they successfully convinced the crowds that Jesus was a false teacher. He was a rabbi not to be trusted. At the very least... They convinced the people that he was a blasphemer. Rather than direct them in their worship toward God, he took God's name and he sullied it. At the very least, at the very worst, they said, he is Satan-possessed, a man indwelt by Satan. And the crowds believed them. These were the rabbis they heard every Sabbath, every Saturday, in their synagogues. These were the men they looked up to and listened to as the teachers of their Bibles, the Old Testament. And if they, with one voice, unanimously came to the conclusion that Jesus was an apostate, the people followed their lead and no longer showed up to hear him. That even trickled down to the level of his family. The disciples watched in horror as one day, this is recorded in Mark chapter 3, Jesus was teaching in a home and his family showed up, brothers and dear precious mother Mary. And 
you will read in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, that they sought literally to kidnap him. They were going to remove him, his family, to do an intervention in his life because they thought, and I'm quoting Mark, they thought he was, quote, out of his mind. His own family. Not only had the religious leaders written him off, but now the political leaders were after him as well. Jesus and the disciples were in Galilee. Let me show you where that is, all right, if I can draw you a map very quickly. I am standing on the top of Mount Hermon, real places. Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet above sea level, tallest mountain peak in the Middle East, perpetually snow-capped even during the ferociously hot Middle Eastern summer. Right below me where these flowers are is a cave. Out of that cave at the time gushed, you would hear the thunderous roar of water gushing out of that cave. Not true today. I can take you to that cave. Today it's not a gush. It's a gurgle. There was an earthquake about 150 years ago. Part of the cave collapsed and it shut off much of that water. But out of it gushed water the headwaters of the Jordan River. So I'm standing at Mount Hermon. There is a cave right there. That cave, the focal point of a region called, perhaps you've heard of it, Caesarea Philippi. Out of that cave came the Jordan River. 20 miles as the crow flies the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus and the disciples were. Just to complete the map, then the Jordan River continues down to the Dead Sea, way down there, and up above the Dead Sea, about a 4,000-foot vertical climb, the holy city of Jerusalem. You always, in the Bible, go up to Jerusalem, 4,000 feet above the Dead Sea that resides at about a level of 1,300 feet below sea level. Jerusalem, about 3,000 feet above. So you get an idea of the topography. So here is Mount Hermon, true north. You can calibrate your compass to me. I am standing at true north. There is the cave out of which is gushing at the time of Jesus, the Jordan River, down to the Sea of Galilee right there, 20 miles on foot that Jesus took his disciples from there to here. Real places. Jesus took them on this road trip because he was aware that the disciples were at rock bottom. No pun intended because we will be talking about rocks in a minute, but rock bottom. The religious leaders had turned against him. The crowds followed their lead, and now the political leaders, most notably the one who ruled over the Galilee region, a guy by the name of Herod, Antipas. Antipas. Herod, you remember Herod from the Christmas story, the butcher of Bethlehem who murdered all of the babies? He had three sons. He had a number of sons, but three factor into the story. We'll talk about two of them this morning. Antipas was in the Galilee region, and word reached Jesus that Antipas was on the prowl. He wanted Jesus arrested and would no doubt kill him. That was a threat not to be taken lightly. It was Herod Antipas who had Jesus' cousin, you've heard of him, a guy by the name of John the Baptizer, arrested and beheaded. 
If he was willing to kill Jesus' cousin, John the baptizer, he would not hesitate to kill Jesus. Antipas was actively seeking him out. Jesus had to leave that region to come to this region. And so with all of that, the Jesus movement was, in the eyes of the disciples, imploding. They were having a really bad day. It looked as if this thing that Jesus had started about two and a half years earlier was now teetering on the precipice and about to plunge into a chasm from which there would be no recovery. The movement was about to die. And even among the 12 disciples, there was dissension in the ranks, the fissures of which were just now barely being seen, light little surface scratches, really, little cracks that would eventually erupt and tear the whole company of 12 disciples apart. There was Judas. Judas, the one disciple of the 12 who didn't come from Galilee, he came from down around the region of the Dead Sea where Judea is and Jerusalem up on top. He was a Judean. We know him as Judas Iscariot. Iscariot is not his last name. It is a geographical designation. Ish means man in Hebrew, and Kariot is a town in Judea. Judas was the man from Kariot, the perennial outsider. He didn't think like the Galileans thought. He didn't grow up in the same culture that the Galileans did. He spoke with a distinctly southern accent, unlike the Galileans, who had a northern accent. He was always the outsider, 11 from Galilee, one from Judea. Did that feed into his bitterness that caused him eventually to betray Jesus? As you know that he did, I don't know how much that factored into the story, but it's interesting to note. And then there was Peter. Peter, who will factor prominently in this story this morning, but Peter, who was literally days away from, on the same night that Judas would betray Jesus, Peter would disown, deny, and disavow Jesus. I don't even know that man. So no matter how you looked at it, everything, was bleak. You want to talk about the dark night of the soul. That was the disciples. Only it wasn't a dark night. It was many nights. And they had to wonder. We gave up everything for this. What was the point? It's over. It's over. So, in order to infuse his men with hope, he took them to Caesarea Philippi. Why in the world did he take them to Caesarea Philippi? Let me tell you about Caesarea Philippi right down here. There is a cave. That cave is very prominent. Before the New Testament, we're talking about now in the years leading up to the beginning of the New Testament, okay? That place was not called Caesarea Philippi. That place was called Panius. Panius. Because that was the center, worldwide center, the Mecca, if you want, of the worship of the false god Pan. Pan. Let me tell you a little bit about Pan. Pan was the fertility 
God. But beyond that, the word pan, we talk about a panorama, a picture that takes in everything, a panorama, a sweeping panorama. Perhaps you've heard the word pantheism, where everything, everything is worshipped as God, pantheism. The worship of pan became a grotesque amalgamation of the worship of every false god everywhere in the world. If you wanted to take the worship of every false god everywhere in the world and put them all together in one witch's brew, a cauldron of religious distortion, that would be the god Pan. When you bow the knee to Pan, you are worshiping every god worshipped everywhere, anywhere in the world. Let me put it to you this way. Pan came to represent everything that was wrong with a world that is woefully broken. Everything that is wrong with a world that is woefully broken. If there are times when you feel despair over a culture that is disintegrating. Whatever it is that is causing you despair, to personify it, it would be represented by pan. Everything wrong with this world that is broken. Why did Jesus take them there? But it gets worse. So that was life under the Greeks when the Romans came to power, and now we're entering the time of the New Testament. Another one of Herod's sons, his name was Herod Philip, decided because he ruled over this region, his brother Antipas down there, Philip up here, he decided to build his capital at the base of this cave where all of that water gushed out. In honor of himself, he named the place Caesarea Philippi, Herod Philip. But in honor of the Caesar, Augustus Caesar, who ruled and reigned in Rome, he called it Caesarea Philippi, built a temple to Caesar here, and erected a gigantic statue of Caesar here, making a bold statement that reverberated around the world, as powerful as you think Pan is, and all of the gods represented by him, there is one God even more powerful than Pan. That God is the God Zeus, and his son, the son of God, named Caesar Augustus. The statue of the son of God Caesar Augustus, the Caesar more powerful than Pan. Do you get the picture? Why in the world did Jesus bring the disciples here? They had never been here. And when they arrived here, they had heard of the place to be sure. Every self-respecting rabbi warned his people repeatedly, You do not go to Caesarea Philippi. You don't set a toe in Caesarea Philippi. That is off limits. It is the center of worldwide paganism, and it is the worship 
of Caesar as the Son of God. You do not go to Caesarea Philippi. Why did Jesus take them there, and what did they see? They would have seen the temple to Caesar, but at the mouth of the cave, out of which gushed all of that water, was the gigantic temple that had been erected for the worship of the god Pan, the fertility god. Water brings life, yes? So where better to worship the god of fertility than where all of the water comes? Now, something that you need to understand about the Bible, and that is this. In our culture, we say, if you want to know why a story develops the way it does, in our culture, you always follow the money, right? Follow the money. That's not true in the Middle East, and that's not true in the Bible. If you want to know why a story develops the way it does, you always follow the water. It's always about the water. And that's where the water was. The source of fresh water for the entire land that we lovingly refer to today as Israel. It all came gushing out of that cave. If there is no water, there is no fertility. You understand that, right? That means the animals in the flocks don't reproduce for those who are shepherds, and the land will not produce for those who are farmers. Water is everything in the Middle East. And there are only four months a year when you can hope for rain. The rainy season, November to February. You'll sometimes get a smattering of raindrops in March and after, but not enough to make any difference. The rain falls from November to February. Once February ends, it was believed that Pan would descend into the waters gushing out of that cave into the underworld where he would spend a refreshing summer below ground while everything above ground was sizzling in the blistering hot Middle Eastern sun. And the fear of the people was that at the end of summer, Pan may fail to emerge from that cave. If he doesn't come out, the water won't come out. And if the water doesn't come out, everything dies. Their lives depended upon that water. That water depended upon Pan. And Pan had entered the underworld through that cave. Consequently, there was a gigantic temple erected over that cave. And because we're talking about a fertility cult, there were two plazas that were erected adjacent to this cave on which the worshipers of Pan 
Don't worry, parents, I will be discreet. I know there are younger ones around. I'll simply say they, in, in order to entice the fertility god Pan to come out of the cage and make the land fertile and the flocks fertile again, engaged in every form of perverted debauchery that you can imagine and much that you have never imagined out in the open, on that plaza, incorporated in their worship. Without any disclaimer, this is pre-worship. No, no, no. It was their worship trying to seduce the god Pan to emerge from the underworld and to come to the surface and for the water to gush again. Because Pan is depicted as a half-man and half-goat, goats were sacrificed in that cave. When the goats were sacrificed, their dead carcasses were thrown into the water of that cave. If the goats disappeared, the people would rejoice, they would dance, and the perversions would escalate to the next level because if the animal did not emerge, it meant that the god Pan was pleased with the sacrifice and had received it. And all indications are he would eventually emerge from that cave again and the rains would fall. But if the animal floated to the top, then it was an indication that the offering had been rejected. And so they would ramp up the unspeakable acts of perversion being performed out in the open in the hopes of enticing Pan to receive the next animal as it was slaughtered. This was human depravity and debauchery to a degree that you and I can't even begin to imagine. And that's where Jesus brought the disciples in their darkest hour. Can you imagine? And so what they would have seen are people in their thousands and tens of thousands from throughout the Middle East making pilgrimage to Caesarea Philippi, not particularly to worship the Caesar, though the imagery was meant to convey that Caesar was even more powerful than Pan, but they didn't really believe that Augustus Caesar would bring the rain, son of God, though they thought he was, but they really came to worship Pan. And can you imagine in the eyes of these Jewish disciples who had never seen anything like it before? It's not like you could Google it. They couldn't go on YouTube and see videos of it there were no documentaries that were produced about it. They had only heard what was going on. Now they saw it. And all of its debauchery being lived out before them. And I have no doubt that their reaction would have been the same as, well, frankly, mine. And that is this. We're 13 guys. 
one of whom is an enemy of the state and being hunted by Antipas, who had just killed his cousin. We're 12 guys and we are horribly divided and the fishers will get worse. What are 12 people against these thousands and tens of thousands who are cavorting and carrying on? And we gave up everything for this. What's the point? What are we doing? What are we doing? Heartland really make a difference in light of the debauchery of a disintegrating culture? What are we doing? Jesus gathered the 12 together once they were able to breathe again. And he said, I have a question for you. And the question is this, who do these people say I am? Well, they said, we've heard a lot of things. Some people think you might be Elijah. Some people think you might be Jeremiah or one of the prophets. A lot of people just don't have any idea. They don't know anymore. Then Jesus said, but who do you say? And Peter, in typical Peter fashion, jumped to the forefront of the group, spoke first, and then credit to Peter, this is the one time in his life he got it right, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the long ago promised and the long awaited for Messiah, the son of the living God, not like Caesar the son of a dead god, Zeus, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you are right. But then he said, you didn't come up with that on your own. God gave that to you. So poor Peter, the one time he gets the answer right and he didn't even come up with it on his own. God showed him that. But then Jesus made an amazing statement, absolutely amazing statement that has been misunderstood and misinterpreted and misapplied from the day Jesus said it. He looked at Peter and he said this, you are Peter, but upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, there are three things about that statement you and I need to understand. Peter, rock, and church, all right? There are some people who will say that the rock was Peter and that Jesus built the church on Peter. However, that can't be true because there is a pun embedded within that statement. And the pun is a play on words. What Jesus did say was this, you are, and the Greek word is petros. And I can picture in my mind Jesus reaching down and picking up a small stone, known in Greek as a petros. There are many of them around the region of Caesarea Philippi. Believe me, there are many of them throughout the land of Israel. It is a land awash in little stones. And he picked up that stone and he looked at Peter and said, This is you. 
but upon this rock, and the word rock, Jesus changed it, Petra, which means a huge, unshakable, immovable rock like the rock of Gibraltar. Only Jesus wasn't thinking of the rock of Gibraltar. So there are some people who say the rock that Jesus was thinking about was what Peter had just said. Peter isn't the rock. His words are the rock. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Close, but no cigar. He was talking about a rock not unlike the base of Mount Hermon, a rock that can never be moved, a rock that is unshakable, a rock that will stand for all time immovable, at the base of which was the Mecca, the center of the cult of the worship of Pan. He was pointing to the temple outside of the cave out of which gushed the water at the base of the rock that is Mount Hermon. And church, it's the word in the original ecclesia, we translate a church, but it is only translated church in the New Testament, kind of curious. It's a common word in Greek, and the word means a congregation. It means a family. It means a collection of people. It wasn't referring to your local church, no disrespect to local churches. It was referring to the fact that Jesus was going to build a worldwide community family of faith. You with me so far? So he pointed to all of that going on, the religious carnival and all of the carnage and all of the cavorting and all of the corruption that was taking place before the bedazzled eyes of the disciples. And Jesus pointed at that and said, look at that and listen to me. I know you believe it, but today I need you to feel it, okay? I need you to feel it. I need it to go from your head into your emotions. I want you to feel this, gentlemen. You see all of that? On all of that, I will build my worldwide community of faith. And the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. Now, how do I know that when Jesus said upon this rock, he wasn't referring to Peter because of the play on words, Petras, Petra. How do I know that Jesus, in referring to the rock, was not referring to what Peter said, true though it was? Because at the base of that rock face that is Mount Hermon, that is unassailable, gushed to the thunderous roar, deafening in its sound, gallons upon gallons of water. The theory being that it was in that cave, through that water, that Pan would descend into the underworld, colloquially, meaning 
among the people on the streets. That cave was known in Jesus' day as the gates of hell. That's how we know. And that will not prevail against my worldwide family of faith that will stand like Mount Hermon, unshakable, undefeatable, unassailable. Gentlemen, the 12 of you, you are on the leading edge of that. This movement is not dying. We haven't even In March of this year, I took a group of people, as I often do, to Caesarea Philippi. March of this year. That temple is no longer there. The foundations of that temple are in ruins. Water doesn't even gush out of that cave anymore. A slight shaking of the earth, and God shut it off. Oh, there's still water, but it comes out of different sources now. Not that cave. Today it is a gurgle, not a gush. The plazas are there, two of them. They are cracked. Stones are worn. They're covered with trash. They're filled with dust and dirt that blows in the refreshing breezes. Breeze through that place. There are niches, five of them that have been excavated where the nymphs of Pan once stood. And today they are empty. There is absolutely nothing left of the temple to Caesar Augustus, nor his statue. We know of it only through the historian. There's nothing there to see. I cannot show it to you today. It is gone. And so with that group of people, I point to all of that. And I ask them what they see. And all they see are piles of rocks and ruins. That was in March. One month later, on Sunday, the 21st of April, around the world, multiplied millions, millions of people got out of bed, got dressed, 
got into their modes of transportation and made their way to places of worship. And Sunday morning, April the 21st, one month later, in order to raise their voices in unison on Easter Sunday and thunderously proclaim together, up from the grave he arose. To sing together, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Multiple millions of people who, if given the opportunity, would consider it their greatest privilege to bear their necks, as would I, to the sword and willingly give their lives and mine for the one who gave his life for me and to shed their blood and mine for the one who shed his blood for me. And if I could pick up those disciples that day in Matthew chapter 16 and bring them forward in history to today, Easter Sunday morning, and allow them through the miracle of our technology to see through webcams scattered throughout the world, people in their millions coming to express together their undying devotion, not to Pan, and certainly not to Caesar, the son of Zeus, but to Jesus, the son of God, and all of that, and all of us, and all of Heartland, all here because of the influence of those men. It would have blown their minds. as it blows mine every time I think of a place called Caesarea Philippi. That's why he took them there. And that's why this morning I have attempted to take you there. Trust me, no matter what comes against us, no matter how powerless you may sometimes feel, no matter how inadequate all of this may seem, you may feel as helpless and hopeless as a little boy holding up his hands against a tsunami that is about to destroy a coastal city. What hope do you have of holding it back? There is nothing that you and I can do to begin to compare with all of that. Trust me. No, 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 no. Trust Jesus, who is right now today, through places like Heartland and through people like you, building his worldwide family of faith, and the gates of hell not only will never prevail against it, today the gates of hell don't even exist. Jesus wins. And when he wins, we win. So 
So why am I brimming with optimism today? Two words, Caesarea Philippi. Why do I make the point that the Bible is God's written record of real people who lived in real places? Because of a real place called Caesarea Philippi. And where did Jesus take his 12 hand-picked men? In the darkest hour of the darkest season of their lives when everything look, looked lost, he took them to Caesarea Philippi. Don't ever forget this place and what it means today. Father, we are in awe that we can just have a very small part of a very big plan, your plan, to save multiplied millions of people around the world from their sins. I thank you that we have the evidence today etched in stone. Caesar is not God. Pan is not God. But you are God. And that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, whom we love, whom we worship, and whom we serve, even at a humble little place, called Heartland, where you have sovereignly chosen to touch the earth. Thank you, in Jesus' name.